So we continue our study this morning in uh, 1 Samuel, and it's been, it's been such a powerful study to take a look at how God was preparing Israel for um, a new era, a new day. Uh, and two weeks ago, we took a look at the idea that uh, obedience is, is better than sacrifice and, and that we can have these appearances uh, and, 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 and start to look at things the wrong way. And when we saw that when David was anointed, his older brother was seen first, and Samuel thought that this guy's a strapping young lad. He must be the one that God has chosen. He must be the anointed one. And God said to him, said, no, I haven't chosen him, for you're looking at the outwardly appearances, but God looks at the heart. And so we saw that there is a call for us as believers um, to see this truth that godliness and holy anointing are superior to appearances and worldly approval. And that we must be concerned with true godliness and, and, and anointing rather than the approval of men. And we also took a look at this idea that something on the outside can appear healthy. It can look great from the outside. Organizations can look that way. Churches can look like that. Individuals can look like that. But on the inside, it's very, very possible for that thing to look nice but be in the inside very rotten. And so we have to recognize this truth and we have to pray the prayer that God would not allow us to be that that we wouldn't simply have the appearance of godliness but lack its power. And if we do that, may it be our prayer that God would convict us and that we would confess that and that we would turn from it because that's not what we want to be as the people of God. We want to be an appearance of godliness with the power of God. And that's where he's going to use us, not for our glory, but for his glory. And then last week we took a look at the idea that we must walk each step with the heart that we would ask God, what would you have us to do in this very moment? What would you have us to do right now? And we saw that David was not afraid of Goliath. And, and it's such a beautiful image that, that, that when David went out there, he saw, he saw Goliath, and obviously he was a giant guy, right? Uh, a massive man, a massive warrior. And his, the spear, the head of his spear was like 22 pounds. Could you imagine that? You know, for the physicists in the room, calculate the mass and the velocity and the energy that would be transferred, right? Throwing that thing at you, when it hits you, it's going to go through, right? It's not going to stop very quickly. And so here's David, this little, said he was this little guy, right? Uh, he was ruddy, good looking, handsome, had beautiful eyes. He wasn't a scrapper, right, from appearances. But here he comes out and he says, he says to him, he says, I'm going to feed you to the wild animals so that everyone will know that the God of Israel is the true God, right? That there is a God in Israel. And here's this big guy saying, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to feed you to the, to the birds of the air. And David says, no, you're not. I'm going to cut your head off. And it's like, it's a serious moment, right? And I'm, I, could you imagine everyone's probably like, what, what? David, whoa, bro. Like, this is your first fight. Like, you need to settle down a little bit, right? But he says, no, I come in the power of God. Yes. You're not messing with me. You're messing with God. And he's going to kill you through me today. And so we see this power that is on display in David. And David is a man after God's own heart. And we took this step back to say, how crazy is it that God chose David out of everybody else 
And God didn't choose David in ignorance, but he chose David fully aware of every step David would ever take in his life, including his massive failures. And so we took back from that, we said that God chooses us, he, he appoints and he anoints us, even knowing that we will fail. But first and foremost, he's concerned with our hearts. Do we love and admire God? And at the end of the day, is our trajectory, our consistent path, more and more gradual growth and holiness and godliness? Are we becoming more and more like Christ, not for our own praise, but for his glory? Because that's the heart he wants to use. Even though he recognizes in that path, we will sin and we will fail. And God is not surprised by it. So here we are this morning. We're going to take a look at this crazy idea of, of Saul's decline at the same time David's rise. And that David gains popularity and favor. And as this happens, Saul continues to become more and more jealous and so, so much so to the point that he's willing to do just about anything. He develops murderous plots that include uh, his, his own daughters. He's going to marry away his daughters to David so that they might ensnare him, that they might be a trap to him. He tries to send David out to war, see if that'll do anything, see if he can get killed that way. He's got all these crazy plans. And so we also see one of the things that just breaks my heart when I look at this, that, that Saul is willing not just to lay his hand against David, but he's, he's willing to lay his hand against the men of God. And he actually, you'll see it in chapter 22. We're going to cover a lot to this morning. We're starting from 18, chapter 18 to chapter 23. We can't do it all. We're going to hit some highlights. But in chapter 22, Saul has 85 priests at Nob killed. And he tells, he tells this one person, he says, kill, kill this priest. The same priest that gave David the sword, the arms David, and gave him bread. Gave David and his men bread. And, and Saul's like, How, who are you to rebel against me and to help this guy who's my enemy? And he tells this one guy, he said, kill him. He's like, I'm not touching the Lord. I'm not touching the priest. I'm not going to kill him. And then this Edomite says, I'll do it. And Saul's like, great, kill him. And he goes out and not only kills that priest, but he goes out and kills 85 of those who wore the ephod, the, the linen cloth, the men of God. What an arrogant, presumptuous man Saul has become. So ate up, so infected with his own will, so infected with jealousy that he's not just willing to kill David and try to pin him to the wall with a spear, but he is willing to presume upon killing the men of God. Such a tragedy to watch his heart fall apart. But all throughout this, David is spared, and that's what we're going to focus on this morning. And it's such a beautiful image of, of God's salvation. So the major doctrine that I want to defend this morning is the salvation God provides is sure, sweet, and sustained. The salvation that God provides is sure, sweet, and sustained. And as we get going, I want to put something on the screen for you to consider this morning. What do you know about God's salvation? I think how you answer that question is very, very, very telling. It's very important for us to get this right. What do we think about salvation? What do you know about God's salvation? And there is a time in our lives where we have to recognize that we have been saved from the wrath of God but not only that, we are saved from ourselves and we are saved from our sin. And continually, 
we are saved by God from the world and from the evil one who lives in the world who seeks to destroy us. So I ask you, what do you know about God's salvation? That's something I want you to have all throughout your heart and your mind as we continue through, as we uh, unpack the scripture that we have to work through this morning. So the three stops that we're going to make. One, when those in power oppose the Lord's anointed. It's a very interesting thing that we look at here. Um, that David lives under this opposition of a man who's in power but wants to kill him. And then second, the promises observed. There's some, some promises uh, that, are, that we can glean from Scripture here, theological principles that we can say that are true for them, that are now true for us as well. And that's where we're going to spend most of our time this morning. And then three, we're going to take a look at the response to the promise um, and, and really unpack the gospel this morning. So when those in power oppose the Lord's anointed, how should we live? How should we work in that environment? Two, let's take a look at the promises observed and be encouraged by them. And then three, take a look at the proper response to the promise. So step one, let's take a look at this idea of when, the power, when those in power oppose the Lord's anointed. And so I want you to imagine that there is this, um, this, this thing that's going on as David's ascending, Saul's declining. And so it's very hard to, to draw in the air and for you to see it. I don't have a nice pretty graphic for you. But just think that along this line right here, okay, we're going to start right here. And as David is going to head up, Saul is already starting up here, and he's going to go down. And so they're going to start from the same place in time, but Saul's going to go down as David goes up. And there's a, there's a place in which those two lines will intersect, and it's a very interesting place. And that's, not, that's just a thought experiment. That's not, you know, scriptures and saying that X1, Y2, that's where we're going to crash. I'm not saying that. But there is an interesting thing to look at that that's what's happening. As Saul is declining, Saul has already been rejected by God. Saul has already been told that he's going to be removed and that someone better, his neighbor who is better than him, will be king. Saul doesn't quite know that that's actually David just yet. But it's interesting because as David is gaining favor and popularity, Saul at the same time is declining and there's nothing he can do about it. He's in a deadly tailspin, and his only concern is to try to destroy his enemy, who he feels is the greatest threat to his kingdom. And so we see this, this crazy, crazy story of how David is on his upward rise, gaining popularity and favor with everybody, and clearly enjoying favor of God, and clearly demonstrating that he is unequaled among his peers. Look at David. David is a guy that just steps up, and, and, and everyone around is going to look at a person like David and say, who, who is like you? Who in the world is like you? He's this incredibly talented person. It seems like everything that he puts his hand to, he does well. Um, but he, at the same time, is a humble man of God. And he says, that just, remember, he says, just as God delivered me from the paw of the lion and the bear, he will deliver me from this Philistine. He never forgets to give the credit where the credit is due. Yet you can clearly see him. And I'm reminded of, of the thought, I can't remember where I got it from, but it's some Puritan, uh, so it's not mine. They said that there's some people that you come into contact with, and each time that you see them, they seem to grow a little taller, a little brighter, a little stronger in the faith. Do you know people like that? Yes. You run into them and you're like, man, you're a little bit more like Christ since the last time I saw you. You're a little stronger in the faith. You're a little taller. 
And you want to be like that. I picture that's what David was like. He was a young man, and now years have gone, and he's continued to grow in Christ. Now, that's a weird thing to say because Christ wasn't there yet, but the heart is there. He's growing in godliness. He's growing in his humility, but he's also growing in his faith and his ability to trust in God, and this is the time in his life when he will absolutely need to rely on Christ and his power. And I know that's weird talking about the Old Testament, but it isn't like Christ sat off to the side, Jesus and the Holy Spirit twiddling their thumbs with nothing to do until the New Testament comes along. Now, we can't go too far and say, here's exactly what Jesus did here, here, and here. But I think that the power of Christ is the same as it was then as it is today. Amen. You, you, when you look at the Trinity, the Trinity was not divorced. The Trinity was not broken up. So he relied in the power of God to live under this power because what really was, was happening was Saul was in power, he was the king, and he directly opposed the Lord's anointed. So what does this mean for us? Well, I think it's the same thing for us, that, that, that we live in a world that is under the rule of the power of Satan, and we should not be surprised when we are resisted, when we are persecuted, and when we suffer for the name of Christ. And so I want you to think real quick. Are you surprised when the world hates the things of God? You know, sometimes, sometimes at work, uh, and I'm surrounded by people from all over the place. Some of them are believers and some of them are not believers. And sometimes I, I genuinely find myself a little bit surprised that some people act the way that they act. And I literally have to tell myself, why are you surprised? That's right. Why are you surprised? They work for Satan. It isn't, there is no neutral. It's not like some people are here and they're with Jesus and some people are over here, and they belong to the church of Satan. And then there's the people here who are unaffiliated. You are either in one or the other. There's no neutral ground. There's no middle ground. And so literally, you work with people who belong to Satan, who will be used for his purposes. And part of what Satan wants to do is he wants to destroy the things of God. He is opposed to the kingdom of Christ. And he will do anything he can to kill you and me in every way he can. Not just physically, but morally and spiritually. He wants you to die. And when you encounter people in the world who are not in Christ, they absolutely are enemies of Christ. And they are your enemy. Now, you're like, whoa, okay, do we take up arms? No. We don't fight this fight against flesh and blood. But we must not be mistaken that when we go to work and we're surrounded by unbelievers, we must pray for their conversion. We must pray for them to be delivered from darkness. And we can't be surprised when they hate us. And you can't take it personally because it's not you that they reject. It's God that they reject. And so we've got to see it right. We've got to have the right perspective. I want to put this on the screen for us to consider. There will be trouble when God's people live under the rule of those who violently oppose God to bring about their own will for their own glory. Do you get that? When we live over here, we are living in the lie of Satan that it's about us 
And everything that we should do in this life is build up our name, build up our reputation, build up our funds, our riches, um, our, our, our power, so that we can be autonomous and be able to do whatever we want to do and actually live any way we want to live. And there's our will. We have a will, and it's a sinful will, and it's a will that is, that is directly opposed to the will of Christ. And so when we see unbelievers, which we were once, we have to recognize that they hate us in part because when they see God, God is actually opposed to that will, which longs to exalt man and longs to exalt darkness. And so we can't be surprised that there's trouble when God's people live under the rule of those who violently oppose God to bring about their own will for their own glory. And practically, just like David here, David isn't going to go out of his way to fight for himself. And we're actually going to take a really good look at this next week. And I, I hope you can come back because I'm really excited about that. Taking a look at what David does. But we must not make our own way fighting for power or attempting to destroy those who hate us. But we must in humility wait upon the salvation the Lord will bring. So I think we need to do two things. And scripture is very clear at this. It says that we must be wise as serpents yet gentle as doves. David wasn't wandering around thinking, oh, everybody loves me. No one's out to get me. I'm so popular. He had it in his mind. There seems to be something interesting going on here because when a guy throws a spear at you and tries to pin you to the wall, you might take note of that, right? I don't know if you've ever had a boss that you're kind of like, I don't think this boss likes me. Do you walk into work every day and you're like, ah, no worries, no problems. No, you're like, I don't know. Is this my last day? What, you know, what, what, these people at work, they're conspiring against me. Or, you know that feeling. Imagine David living under this because it says that, that this is what happened. Look, um, you see it, uh, it, it very, very clearly. So Saul is, uh, had his spear in his hand. Look at that. Verse 10. The next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul. And that's an interesting thing. And he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre. As he did by day, by day. Saul had a spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him, how many times? Twice. David had to live there. It wasn't like a one-time kind of like, wow, that guy is crazy. I'm never going around him again. David had to live around the king. And David had success. Look at this. And so verse 13 uh, actually, verse 12. Saul was afraid of David. So who caused David to leave? Saul. So Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him. But he had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. Isn't that interesting? It wasn't up to David to quit his job. It wasn't up to David to go and do something else. He couldn't, even though this guy was trying to kill him. But praise God that God allowed for this, that Saul would have this idea to remove David. But only after twice having to evade the spear. That's crazy. I don't know about you, but if someone at work threw a spear at me, I think I'm gone. Right? They don't think I'm like, oh, well, if you do that again. No. First time, we're good. Right? But he, it wasn't like he could just leave. But what we see is that I believe this theological principle that we'll see later in the New Testament that Paul gives us that we are to be wise as serpents, yet gentle as doves. Not ignorant of the times. 
yet not militant either, being wise and understanding the times and the days are evil, but living gentle as doves, knowing that one seeks to still kill and destroy and expecting that we will suffer hardship in following Christ. I believe this. And this is such an interesting thing to live under this. And I want to throw out one more practical thing before we move on. Consider the role of the church. I know this is controversial stuff, and I'm not going to open the can too deep, too wide here. I firmly believe that the role of the church is not to become more and more like the world, to look more and more comfortable to the darkness, but that the church should become an ever brighter and brighter light. Yes. And what does that mean? It means that there's a contrast, there's a difference. So when the lost comes into the church, they think, this is different. They see biblical community. They see people who love and believe in Christ and live a life that reflects that. And so the call is to how do we be the church in a time where Satan is in power? Because I believe Christ's goal is to save sinners and pluck them out of darkness not simply to make the darkness more like the light. I don't believe Jesus' goal is to make the world a little bit more comfortable place for us to live. He, may, he intends to pull us from darkness, put us in the light, and the light stays bright and unadulterated so that it, it, is, it is distinct and it is a place of hope. Why? Because we believe in Christ who is the light of the world. And there is no salvation apart from Christ. So we must recognize that when we are the light, you're exposed. What does a light do? A light, a light is visible. A light is offensive in a, in a sense. And so we've got to recognize that as we preach the gospel, there's a certain element of the gospel that's, a, that's offensive. And it's not our job to make the gospel more offensive. It's offensive enough. But we can't leave out the fact that we preach faith and repentance we preach to a world that is dying in their sins to repent of their sins and to come to faith in Christ. And when you do that, you will be hated. But we trust in Christ even in that work. Step two, the promise is observed. We're going to go on a little survey here, so get your fingers warmed up. We're going to turn some pages a little bit. All right, are you ready? The first thing that I want us to recognize is God will provide godly friends in the loneliness of opposition. Take a look. 18.1. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. It's such a beautiful relationship that Jonathan and David had. And remember, Jonathan is the son of Saul. If anyone should be loyal to Saul, it should be his son. But his son isn't lost on this. He's like, my dad's crazy. My dad is evil. And he loves David. And he commits himself to David. You look again at chapter 19, verse 1. And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants, that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father seeks to, to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Look at this. He has a friend. Go over to 20, uh, chapter 20, verse 13. And take a look over there with me for just a second. And this is Jonathan talking again to David. He says, but 
should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan. The more also if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he's been with my father. He says, if I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. We're going to see that next week. We're going to see that. Saul's going to see this. And David's going to keep this promise. But he has such a sweet, sweet friend in Jonathan. Take a look, same chapter, chapter 20. Look over to verse 41. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose up from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept. David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying that the Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring, forever. And he, and he rose and departed. They had this sweet, sweet friendship. And what I want to encourage you to do is to look for the sweet friends that God has placed in your life. We need one another. And if you're going to live in opposition, opposition to the world, then even opposition that may happen in ministry, opposition that may happen in your family, there will be opposition, but God is faithful and sweet to send friends during those times. Look for them. God has given them to you. Look for them and thank God for them. Theological principle, too, that I see throughout this is that we have this beautiful thing that we can trust in, and that's that God will not let evil go completely unrestrained. This is a really crazy passage, chapter 19. Check it out, verse 21. Actually, um, back up to verse 20. Remember, this is where sending messengers to David, and every one of them is like turning into prophets, and it's like, whoa, what's going on? So Saul's like, well, I'll, well, you guys aren't doing the work. I'm going to go do it, right? So verse 20, chapter 19, verse 20. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying, and Samuel standing, standing as the head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul. And what happened? And they also prophesied. Verse 21, when it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. This guy is thick. He's like, I'll just send more people. And finally, that doesn't work. And he says, well, then I'll go, right? Saul sends messengers again a third time, and they also prophesied. Then he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Seku. And he asked, where are Samuel and David? And one said, behold, they are at Naioth and Ramah. And he went there. And check this out. And the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Naioth and Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes and he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets? If you aren't comforted by this verse, you need to spend time praying this week about this because this is powerful. 
This is a guy who hates the man of God. And this guy is going after him, sending all his resources. And when they're not enough, he decides in his own arrogance and pride that he can go do it. And as he draws near, God completely humbles him. That this guy, the closer he gets, I think the more articles of clothing he strips off and begins to prophesy more and more until he lays face down naked day and night. Did he accomplish his purpose? No. Can you imagine when this is over? We don't, we don't get to see it. We don't know. But think, a whole day and a whole night, and then Saul wakes up, comes out of this. I don't know. And you're like, what just happened? Think about that. It's like, where's my clothes? I'm imagining him like picking up stuff like, whoa, I guess I'll go home. I don't know. But it was crazy. He thought he was going to go do this thing in his own strength, and his own might. And God said, you've got another thing coming. Because God will not let, go, let evil go completely unrestrained. So remember that, that even when the world is out to get us and attack us, and the evil one seeks to destroy us, the evil one himself is restrained. Remember Job, even when Job had that whole thing, and God says, you may, but who set the terms? God did. Satan didn't get to say, here's what I'm going to do, and there's nothing you can do about it. God says, you may go this far and no further. God set the terms. God restrains evil in the world. He restrains evil in the world in a general sense, but he also restrains evil in the world in a particular way in which he actually doesn't let you and me sin to the fullest degree that we could sin because he convicts our hearts through the Holy Spirit. He changes circumstances. If he knows, because he knows everything, that you can't stand up under this, he makes ways in which you won't be put in certain situations. Now, throw this up there. You can live as a fool and go around the protection that God set up and make some huge mistakes. But even in that, God reserves you and protects you from going even further than you would go. And we must pray that God continues to restrain evil in the world, but don't be lost on this. Pray that he would restrain the evil of your own heart, that you might not sin against him. As David said, protect me, Father, not only from my hidden or secret sins, the sins I don't even know about, but my presumptuous sins, the sins that we presume upon the mercy of God with. And David goes on to say, and may they not lord over me. May they not rule over me. Pray for that, but remember that. And then it's a beautiful thing that we see next. God will equip those who love and honor him. Chapter 21, 8 and 9. Take a look at this. David and his men are out there. They're running away, and they come to the priest, and they're looking for some bread. They got some bread. And then he's like, David's like, I need, some, I need something, right? You got, you got any weapons? Verse 8, and David said to Himelech, uh, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, is here wrapped in a cloth behind, behind the ephod. If you will take it, if you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And what does David said? David said, There is none like that. Give it to me. Okay, so think of this. Man, I wish we had more time. David cut off, 
Goliath's head with this sword, and we don't know what happens with it, but it goes and hangs out with these priests. And it's wrapped up in a cloth and ephod, like that was the robe that these priests would wear. And it was hidden away. And David's like, do you have any weapons? I need a weapon. And the priest's like, you know what? There is one, one sword. You've used it before. If you want it, you can have it. And David's like, there's not another one. I'm, I'm thinking like, there's not another assault rifle like it. Right? That's our terms. I'm not going to go into a whole, you know, south and why we can have guns thing. But I think that an argument could be made here. <laughs> but there's an interesting thing that God equips David. So grow in this. You and I should grow in the ways in which God equips us because that's what we see in Ephesians, that he's given different people and different gifts to equip the church so that it can do the work of ministry. So we must grow as God equips us. Now it was with the physical sword that David was equipped, but we are equipped with the sword of the Spirit. Love this, respect it, obey it. Because this is how we are equipped today to fight the evil that is in the world. And then these, second, these last two go together and they have to do with trust. God will never abandon those who seek him and will not fail to guide their steps. Take a look at 22, verse 5. Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. This is an interesting thing here because we also see in 1911 and 23, 1 through 5, which we don't have time to go into this morning. But God does not abandon David. and He will not abandon you, but he gives guidance. And we see even, even the wife that David was given, Michael, who was the daughter of Saul, she, she tells him, get out of here because my, my dad wants to kill you. So God provides guidance to David to save him. And he provides guidance for us as well. So God will never abandon those who seek him and will not fail to guide their steps. And then second, God will make a way of escape for those who love and obey him. Take a look at chapter 23, verses 26 through 28. 23, 26 through 28. Look at this. And Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side of the mountain... And David was hurrying to get away from Saul. Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them. A messenger came to Saul saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore that place was called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of Engadai. Did you see what just happened? The world was closing in on David and there was nothing David could do. And God used the Philistines to come and pull Saul away at just the right time. God will make a way of escape for those who love and obey him. And when you are facing opposition and when you are facing temptation, look for the way of escape that God will provide because he will. He will provide it. And our last stop this morning with the negative 18 seconds I have. The 
response to the promise. So just listed off these things. God will provide godly friends in the loneliness of opposition. God will not let evil go completely unrestrained. God will equip those who love and honor him. And God will never abandon those who seek him and will not fail to guide their steps. And God will make a way of escape for those who love and obey him. What's our response to this? Very simply, those who trust in Christ shall be saved and the Lord shall guide them all their days. David needed to be saved from a jealous king and God made a way, but we need to be saved from our sin, our guilt, and our shame, which leads to spiritual death. We are dead and we are enemies of God until he does something to bring us in. So the call and the response is to respond to the promise by trusting in Christ because we were first enemies of God until we repented and we believed. And there is no reconciliation. There's no way to be reconciled to God unless we come through the work of Jesus Christ. And so that's what we pray this morning is that for those of us who believe we will trust in the work of Christ and those who do not yet believe that you will believe in the work of Christ. Romans 5.24, excuse me, 4.24. We don't have time to go into it this morning. But it literally says, we can be saved when we believe in him who sent Jesus Christ. So we call to respond to the promise, to come to Christ today. And second, we are in need of constant guidance from God. As we live in a world that hates Christ and in turn hates those who belong to him. So we need Christ for salvation, but we need Christ for our daily guidance every single day from here on out. Let's stand and we will close. Father, I'm so thankful for your word. My goodness, it's so rich. We've eaten well this morning from your word. It's nourishing to our souls. And Father, may we chew on it all afternoon. May we get another bite tomorrow morning, tomorrow afternoon, tomorrow evening. Every time we have a physical meal, may we grab a bite to eat from your word. May we truly recognize that we are sustained by the word. Both the written word and the living word who is Jesus Christ. Father, may we believe these theological concepts that we've seen throughout your scripture. As David was running away from Saul, we see that you blessed David with a sweet, sweet friend, Jonathan. God, may we recognize the sweet friends you've given us. As we stand under holy conviction to live godly lives in a world that hates us, may we be strength to one another and encouragement to one another. May we recognize the ways you bless us through our sweet friendships. And may we see that that's what church is, a biblical community for us as believers to lean on one another, to come here to be built up, to be strengthened, because we're going to go right back out into the world today and tomorrow and all this week to fight. And Father, we come here to be built back up, to be encouraged and equipped, to go back out to share the gospel with those who are dying. And Father, may that be our work this week. 
Father, I pray that you'd help us to really believe that you will make a way for your anointed. And even if the way is challenging and unpleasant for a time, God, please let us see that your presence is faithful and pleasant. That the salvation that you provide is sweet, sure, and sustained. Father, we believe that those who trust in Christ shall be saved, and the Lord shall guide them all their days. So church, as we continue to pray, I ask you to consider the ways in which God has provided for your salvation. To consider the godly friends he has given you. And to consider how he restrains evil and equips those who love and obey him. And I promise you, church, that he will never abandon you. He will never fail to guide your steps. He will always make a way of escape for you church believe this that God loves you and is working to bring about your good and his glory in Jesus name so as we respond this morning I pray that you consider these truths and I pray that you consider the word this morning and if you are a believer I pray that you take a moment just meet with the Lord in sweetness thank him for your salvation and to ask for his guidance. And if you're not a believer, I encourage you to respond to the word of your salvation. Trust in Christ. We'll be here if you want to talk about it. Let's continue to worship.